welcome back to Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, the podcast where we break down the movie American Splendor, scene by scene, talk about Harvey Picar, and discuss the joys and challenges of being professional cartoonists. I'm Josh Newfeld of joshcomics.com. And I'm Dean Haspiel of deanhaspiel.com. And today we are discussing scene number 11 of American Splendor, which starts at minute 17, second 51, and ends at minute 20, second 21. And this is the scene that we like to call standing behind old Jewish ladies in supermarket lines. Yes, because that's came from the comic of the same name. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so the scene starts with Harvey Picar, played by Paul Giamatti pushing a shopping cart in a supermarket, grabbing a couple of cans of Franco-American macaroni and cheese, as one does. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's, as usual, despondent and grumpy until he turns a corner to pay for his items when he notices a long line at the checkout counter. He quickly surveys the adjacent checkout uh, counter and sees one unassuming Jewish lady next to it. And that sparks the first new thing that happens in the movie which is kind of like this animated subconscious of yeah. Harvey's, where there's literally a thought balloon. And I think it starts with, does it start with text and then goes into a drawing of Harvey animated? I think he just pops up all of a sudden, like on the screen. And right. then the- Almost like there's a still of Harvey kind of sitting there caught, you know, in between things. Right. You know, trying to make a decision. And it's kind of like this interesting kind of creative process that you're watching as a, as a viewer. And I call it like an animated subconscious. And I believe the animators were Gary Lieb and Doug Allen, and who's the third person? I believe John Kuramoto was John involved Kuramoto. as well. Probably involved in, in making the actual animation right. animate. So with that in mind, we see this funny thing start to happen, where it's like literally is a cartoon that's brought into, but it's also off the heels of the last scene, where if you listen to the last episode, Harvey was unable to basically write a comic, and he's frustrated, and he kind of gives up, right. literally. And now he's in a supermarket store. Well, your comic told him to give it up. That's right, the one that I drew. (laughs) He followed directions. So he's in uh, the supermarket trying to buy stuff, trying to figure out which line to go on. There's the long line, there's the short line. So in this thought process, he goes, oh, there's an old nice Jewish lady. That'll be easy. So he pushes his cart over, and he likes to stand behind the Jewish lady and only discover she has plunked down discounted receipts for some glasses she meant to buy yesterday. And it's going to stall the process. And once again, we return back to Harvey's head. The animated Harvey starts to pop up in this thought balloon and it, it starts to animate. And he starts to kind of have this angel versus devil kind of version of Harvey discussing the matter and trying to figure out what's the best strategy. You know, because Picard realizes he's, he's possibly made a horrible mistake as his animated subconscious to base this, the strategy of shopping. Once again, and this seems to be a trope throughout the movies, Harvey feels stuck in his life. He's like, what to do? And through wrestling with this in this scene where this is really funny thing happening between, you know, being witness to another person's plight, i.e. the old Jewish lady wanting to basically get discounted, you know, uh, glasses to, to drink from and whether or not Harvey chose the right line to expedite his uh, shopping experience. <laughs> he finally, I mean, this is the kind of drama that happens in this movie, if you think <laughs> about it. This is high drama. That's right. Yeah, for this film. Um, finally, his animated subconscious asks, are you going to just stand there in silence, or are you going to make a mark? And then Picard pushes his shopping cart aside and leaves. And that's what's more important is not whether or not 
Harvey can, you know, buy the items quickly enough and, and leave the store, it's again, it's going back to this thing of like, who am I? What am I doing? What's my purpose? And struggling and wrestling with that in the most, you know, mundane thing like shopping for Franco-American macaroni and cheese in, in, a, in a grocery store. Yeah, that's true. And that's interesting because for the purpose of the film, that scene works in that exact way yes. to to get him unstuck and right. we'll find out next scene what it is that it motivates him to do but in the original story that this came from which was in American Splendor number three published in 1978 and illustrated by our friend Robert Crumb the story has a very different purpose which I think is much more illustrative example of the ups and downs and foibles and and frustrations of Harvey in his life and sort of the way that he it's such a great example of the way that he's able to take these everyday experiences and turn them into entertainment. And there's a lot to that original story that gives it the reason to exist. There, besides, there's so much. When I read the story, yeah, because you only get a hint of it, you know, in the movie, right? I realized it's not only a great story, but there's a lot of other things involved in it mm-hmm. that was really funny and very poignant. Yeah. And in a way, what this is doing, and I was hoping, I think, when I first saw the movie. What it does is it kind of creates a little bit of a greatest hits for Harvey, mm-hmm. you know, the movie, so that it doesn't explain all the stories in, in total, you know, or you, you get like a little snippet or a taste, you right. know, a, a preview, that is. And this is the first time in the movie where you're starting to see creativity, you know, like how does creativity work? Well, he's sitting there, he's experiencing some life, he's frustrated, right. how to express that. And so now what's being conveyed is that you know well how can i turn this into art and he's not thinking that in the moment right at the moment he's not thinking about that it's actually there's like and that's expressed through these animation these animated drawings that come to life that's right even though they're illustrated by crumb before he'd ever actually agreed to work with harvey although that's you know no that's beside the point it's seeing into the future in a sense but in a way like you know as a writer especially in comics i've been told like my friend vito del sante who writes superhero comics. And sure. I've known him for many years. He worked at a comic shop and then went on to become his own writer and everything. But he always says, and, and it's it's very flattering, that whenever he comes up with a new idea, the first artist that pops up in his head is me because hmm. I was his first collaborator in comics. Okay. We worked on a Batman uh, comic. Uh, right, yeah, I remember that story. And like, I thought, oh, that's very flattering. And, and like, I guess for sometimes a writer probably sometimes has to think of like, mm-hmm. just like if you're thinking about like how to make a film or how to write a book, you might think of a favorite author or a favorite filmmaker, right? right. So I guess in this, it would make sense that Harvey would imagine our Crumbs, Robert Crumbs' version right. of this story, you know, before even asking, you know? That's how maybe that's where the process goes. Because again, he's frustrated from the last scene. He only draws stick figures. He doesn't know how to visualize these mm-hmm. things. And I've said in other interviews or, or essays that I always felt like Harvey wholly relied on the artist to visualize because of the fact that he only drew stick figures. He was doing more of a pacing thing with his writing in comics than he was necessarily thinking about what an angle or an expression would necessarily be. I don't. He never described, make me angry, make me happy, right. make me whatever. He was, it was always implied in the dialogue right. that it he was, was writing. It was up to you as the artist to kind of read into, to, to really immerse yourself in the story and kind of understand what his aesthetic was all about and then kind of right. do the acting for him. Right. And right. as we know, I don't think you or I ever had him come back at us with a complaint about the way anything had ever been drawn except oh, no. for one story that I did once. I had a few complaints. Did you? Absolutely. From him. Oh yeah. Oh interesting. There was a funny moment and then I'm gonna hear what happened to you. 
is I was drawing uh, in the quitter. Like I said, I, he had given like a 62 or 64 page document. I can't remember what it was of like eight panels a page, you know, the way he writes. And I had to basically cut it up and kind of adapt it and put it into a 96 page graphic novel, you know, right. but keep true to the source material and keep it verbatim. And there was one point where one page looked like it was going to have seven panels on it. And it was a lot of information. Basically, it was just like him describing a neighborhood and the color of that neighborhood, like it had this, this kind of thing happening and those people worked there and this. And at one point he describes, I think two Turkish deli owners or something. And I said, hey, is it okay to take this out? And he insisted on it staying there because he had written it that way, it was meant to be there and it needed to be part of his narrative even though you never visited these people. Uh -huh. He was just basically saying they were there. Interesting. And so I remember that I suddenly, came upon a very strict Harvey in certain ways. Mm. Even though he gave you a lot of latitude, yeah. if he wrote it, it meant to So if it was, it was in there, there, he wanted it in there, but if you wanted to add more stuff or give more flavor to things, which I did, he we was all usually did. fine with You that. know, it, yeah. you could look at something, I remember one time he was talking about how he was reading a book about coal, which I thought was hilarious, you know? <laughs> and so I started to seed that book into the scene before he arrived at it and talked about it, you oh, know? Right, yeah, like cool. it's on the corner, on the side, you know? Like, right, right. Or I might cut away to something because there's only so much of someone's face you can draw and you have to, you know, what's happening in the room yeah. is a cat yawning or whatever, you know, yeah. like what's it about, you know? And then finally I drew a scene for when we took American Spun to the comic series to Vertigo after the success of the quitter. Mm -hmm. And there was a uh, two miniseries that uh, came out of that. Yeah. I contributed to those. That's right. And he wrote a story where I thought it was a black kid playing with him and throwing rocks at each other. Mm. Like they're a little rock war or something like that. While they're... And then I drew the whole thing and he told the editor, no, it's a Jewish kid. Oh, interesting. What have you done? Like what, right, you know? right. And I was like, but first of all, does it matter? Because it was nothing about black or Jewish, so it could just be a kid, mm -hmm. you know? Right. And he was just so insistent, again, trying to stay to the truth. Right, he wanted it to stay to, you know? to how it actually That I literally happened. had to redraw the faces uh, that's <laughs> uh, and, the, you know, I guess the arm, the limbs of, of, the, of this kid. Right. And it was so annoying. I was so angry about that. Because, <laughs> again, there wasn't a necessary narrative purpose to that. Except right. it had to be except how him, it happened. And, and certain truths needed to remain... Again, maybe going Consistent. back to, the, to to my theory that you know because his parents, you know, got dementia and and basically died of Alzheimer's disease, right, right. That he was just you know he wanted to put down everything that happened to him. Yeah, the way it happened. but obviously, and I think we'll talk about this in a future episode. There's when you are writing autobiography, there's so much creative license that comes into play and mm -hmm. is just necessary to make a story work mm -hmm. and to create the flow that you want. And obviously he did that many times over the course of his uh, career, but there were certain things that it seemed like he was very strict about. But it's odd because again, the few times, you know, he may not like the way something was drawn. Okay, fine, you know, yeah. and, but like when it didn't have the narrative, like it was just, I, I was very respectful about that. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I just felt like the couple of times I asked, could we, do we need this? Yeah. And well, was, I mean, you know, if I could if I could postulate, I think that maybe in your case, you were kind of always a little bit on on the edge for him because sure. your style definitely is a little more stylized yeah. than most of the artists that he worked with. And I right. feel like he maybe kept you on a shorter leash just because he was kind of always afraid that you might push it too far past. But he there worked was, with Crumb. Crumb was his first artist. I know, but Crumb was restrained for him compared to other stuff Crumb did. Like well, he, with other he definitely stuff that Crumb kept did. it yeah. earthbound. And also, 
I mean, he was working with Robert Crumb. He was working with a legend. Yeah. And I think he was... And, and I actually was at a panel recently where somebody was talking about their collaborations and they were talking about how they analyzed uh, all the work that Crumb did with Picar over the years. And mm. what was very clear to them as the years progressed was mm. that Crumb got less and less interested in working with Harvey Picard. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was something that came through in the art about that. Do you actually know the last story, the last collaboration they did? I think it was, um, it was, it was like 10 years after the prior one. It was sort of around the same time that, that Harvey got back on David Letterman after the long hiatus, after they'd had their kind of blow so up. What, do they have a... I don't know. I don't think so. I've never heard that there was any huh. thing that happened. It was more just like, I think Crumb got interested in other stuff and started doing longer form things. And mm-hmm. um, he was working on those Kafka books and stuff for yeah. a while. But uh, anyway. Interesting. I mean, yeah. again, again, like true Crumb style, you could say was restrained for what Crumb did in American Splendor. But I guess since it's already been established that Crumb was becoming famous. Mm-hmm. And oh, he's already really famous. Already famous. By this time. Yeah. Like, what was he famous for at that time? Did he not do any of the shocking kind of radical stuff that he had done? We had none of that appeared yet. Or no, no, had? all of it had already appeared. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. No, I'm defending me right that. now. I'm defending. <laughs> I understand myself. Right now. Just so you know, well, somebody has to. That's right. I mean, the. I may have been stylized, and I may have, like, you could see my comic book, uh, my, my superhero leaning. Your genre. My, yeah, my genre. Yeah. But again, I think it only made his comics better. Sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, that's completely valid no. opinion, and there are a lot of people who never picked up American Splendor comics because they found the art to be so pedestrian. Sure. And sure. maybe in the Vertigo series, when you, you know, you right. were much more of a force, and you helped to bring on a lot more uh, cartoonists Cook. who had strong, you know, styles, yeah. mm-hmm. there definitely was a different feel to that. But I would bet if you did, like, a poll of Harvey P- of American Splendor readers, you'd probably find them split, right. you know, between those who... Uh, didn't care for that kind of, you know, much more stylistic interpretation. Right. And those who were really happy for it because it enlivened what to them were otherwise, you know, not so exciting Do you feel like aesthetically, if you had to pick between the two, if you had to pick, draw a line type thing, Mm -hmm. would you, did you prefer the kind of original, like I was into PCAR before anybody else was type kind of, you know, comics? I mean, I think that the writing was probably a little bit better and richer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um, that, to me, is... That's the only question. Like, for me, the art in all those comics is really secondary to the writing. And mm-hmm. I think that there's some artists there whose work is not exciting to look at mm-hmm. um, in those early comics. But the stories are so vital and so mm-hmm. raw and real and, and funny and so observational mm-hmm that it almost didn't matter mm-hmm. who did the art for them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I know that I'm not, as an artist, that's kind of an odd thing for me to say, but um, mm-hmm. that's how I feel. And I do feel that the stories, as especially when Harvey retired and was no longer working at the VA hospital and wasn't maybe having those in the street and, and on-the-job interactions with right. people, his life got a little bit more constrained. It seemed like the, mm-hmm. the stories weren't as powerful, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as compelling. That's interesting. I mean, you're right, basically. You know, although he did go on to then write about other things that were were not really about him, even though he yeah. figured out a way to yeah. insert himself, like Macedonia, mm-hmm. or you know, like and I and he did some biographies of other people. Yeah, and, yeah. 
Yeah, I That's mean, he, he he definitely, and I think this is tough for any artist who's kind of established themselves doing mm. a certain thing that when they evolve and change as every artist does and they go off in a different direction, that people who, you know, flock to them for, for what whatever form it was they defined now are angry at them for sort of changing direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, you and I have talked about that about with Prince, you know, mm-hmm. we, we loved those first 15 years of Prince's career so mm-hmm. much. And when he kind of went off in a different direction and sort of mm-hmm. wasn't as funky as he was earlier, it just lost something and that he still was Prince, but he didn't have the magic or the spark that he had earlier in his career. Although I've, I've that's how I feel. And, and I agree mostly. I think he always had at least one good song per album. Yeah. But the albums but, weren't but great albums anymore. It used to be anymore. 10 great songs on every album. It used album. to be great albums. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and that happens. I've always been interested in, in doing a collection of the final works of some of our favorite auteurs. Mm-hmm. You know, I know like for instance, Stanley Kubrick gets a lot of crap for Eyes Wide Shut being mm-hmm. his final movie. And people were like, "What? That's his, how could that be his last movie?" You yeah. know, and but it is it is fascinating. How did one arrive to where? And then they, you know, I don't think he wanted to die and let that be his last movie. He had yeah. other projects in mind, you know. And it, and actually, I actually like that movie more than I did originally. I read actually. Do you know the cartoonist Tim Kreider? Yeah, he writes you know mm-hmm. prose stuff too. And he wrote a review of that once that I read that really made me like reevaluate it and kind of appreciate it a lot more. One of my uh, the actors that uh, was in one of my plays, uh, Harry Carey Kane. The actor's name is Linus Gelber. Loves Eyes Wide Shut mm-hmm. and, has all, and and like did a lot of studying on that as well and other critics. And it is interesting because of that conversation I had with him recently. I then went and you know dusted off my copy of eyes wide shut and washed it again and i still didn't like it still didn't work (laughs) i still didn't like it it's tom cruise's fault (laughs) well welcome to our prince and stanley kubrick (laughs) minute and uh we'll return but what would i mean gosh would harvey have, have been commenting on trump today in his work oh i'm sure he would have sure you know like he passed away what year 2010. So it's been eight years, let's say. In fact, I think his birthday was recently. Yes, it was. And October. yeah, that's eight years. Like, what would Harvey have been writing today? Because he would have been writing. I mean, sure. He was writing. I mean, I think well, he'd always write about stuff. jazz. He'd always write about music. Right. And yeah, I'm sure he would have had something to say if, if not like a long book, at least like a one page New Yorker piece mm-hmm. or something like that. I know that he and Joyce were working on a, a couple of books together. I think mm-hmm. one was about their marriage. Forget what the other one was and about. There's still there's still a possibility some of them might come out, right? That would be great. I know she's she's uh, got her feelers out there. Yep, yep. Uh, but just getting back to the actual comic that this right. was based on, I I love this comic. It's one of the original pieces that I read of American Splendor back when I was first like sort of binging on American Splendor. That really stuck out for me. And what I like about it is that it plays out pretty much exactly the way this scene in the movie does up until the point where in the movie Harvey gets frustrated and he walks out without buying anything but in the comic he actually switches lines and goes back to the uh, Mm -hmm. longer line where he said a lot of goyish looking people who didn't seem to care how much money they spent (laughs) were waiting online and they just zipped through the line and so he succeeded in in uh, you know getting out of there with his groceries and then he actually discovered that he hadn't bought everything that he needed so he had to go back to the grocery store 
And when he went back to the grocery store, he was stuck again on a line behind a, a Jewish lady, and he was expecting a sort of similar scenario to play out. And instead, she actually like belied and betrayed all of the cliches because first she offered to let him go in front of her, and then when she got to the counter, she kind of went right through. But then she was looking at her um, her counter tape, you know, the the printout of her groceries and Harvey was looking at her and thinking oh she's going to complain about the mm-hmm. she was overcharged and actually she wanted to tell the cashier that she had been undercharged for something and That's she right. tried to give the cashier back some money and there was this whole funny thing and he was thinking that maybe she was a mutant or something like she, she was taller yeah, than she most was taller than most yeah. of the Jewish ladies anyway the whole scene and um the 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 sort of the colloquial vernacular that it all plays out in is very Woody Allen or Neil Simon to me in a way that I'm very familiar with and I really enjoyed and obviously I'm Jewish and I have I had Jewish grandmothers who acted like that and um, that scenario was very familiar to me as a person and also in a familiar trope in our culture so there's something really comforting and enjoyable about the way it plays out both in the original comic but in the movie too there's also he introduces a subplot I think for the first time (laughs) in this story because uh, the second line that he goes back to buy the milk, he notices it's a lady that uh, accidentally gave him too much money. Right. And that's actually the cashier. Part of the, the cashier. Right. And then she does the same thing, to the, the same thing to, to the, the lady. Woman. Yeah. So exactly. He, he sets up a joke that pays off in the end, yes. which yes. is great, yes. which shows you that he was thinking it all through and he wasn't was. just making it But up. I wonder if he was <laughs> thinking it all through or he was just writing what happened. You know I don't think saying? so. I think he, I mean, even if it was, he n- understood the way that stories work yes, and the way that absolutely. you seed things in and pay it off at the absolutely. end. Absolutely. Um, one little thing, too, about the actress who plays the lady in the, the, in the movie Jewish version. Lady. Yeah, her name was Sylvia Cotters. And she was a longtime actress. She actually died at age 94 wow. back in 2016. And I was reading a little bit about her that she actually didn't get into acting until she was already in her 60s wow. and was in tons of movies, always played like, these familiar. memorable small roles. The only movie that I actually think I remember her in was Witness, the, mm-hmm. the great Harrison Ford movie from the 80s, mm-hmm. where she played, I believe, one of the women who was at the train station at the beginning. She also played, I think, Yoda in Star Wars. Oh, Star yeah, Wars that's, where, that, that's where I know her from. <laughs> How could I forget that? <laughs> Anyway, this whole thing, so here we're introduced to this new version of Harvey, which in a way is the Crumb version that we had seen earlier when when, uh, Crumb was showing him in his sketchbook, but this is the animated Crumb version of Harvey. And by my count, this is the fourth version of Harvey that we've seen in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's, it's, I always remark to myself that every time you mention Harvey in the movie, you always say Paul Giamatti as Harvey. Like you're always reminding us that this is an actor playing him. But now I'm seeing that it makes sense because we've already seen a kid version of Harvey, Mm -hmm. the actual Harvey, Paul Giamatti as Harvey, and then this cartoon comic R. Crumb version of Harvey. So we're already up to number four. Technically be the fifth because there's the sketchbook Right, Harvey I was sort of combining the two of them. But but then animated Harvey, I feel is is different. Yeah, is a different. And I did you notice that? Paul Giamatti kind of pitched his voice a little bit differently when he was playing the cartoon version of Harvey. Yeah, he played so him. It's like he could have a dialogue with himself, That's but it, right. it was like the cartoon comic right. version right. Right. versus right. Right. the real-life Harvey. Almost like the iconic Harvey. You yeah. Know, the most iconicized version. Like when people do Harvey's voice, that's the voice he was doing more than ever. Yeah. You know? And the animators 
I learned this by listening to the commentary, the animators were told to create this version of Harvey that was sort of a mixture of Harvey Picar and Paul Giamatti. So hmm. they created this cartoon version that kind of right. looked a little bit like it could have been either one of them, right, which right. is kind of cool. That makes sense. Because it also, you want it to look somewhat like, I mean, how many other times do we see Harvey drawn in the movie? I don't think we do. No, this is the first time. But after that, I don't think we even, unless... You mean other like animated versions? Or even drawn versions. Well, we see other examples from other comics all, all the way through. You mean like close-ups of pages and yeah, stuff like that? Yeah, close-ups of pages. Okay, And maybe. then there's like our cancer year. There's a fair amount of stuff sure. there. Sure. Okay. All yeah. right. Okay. But this is just the first one. And then obviously there's this whole animation thing. So what, right. do you remember when you saw the movie, like whether you were expecting that to happen? Did you kind of know that they were going to introduce animated elements or was it totally a surprise? I didn't know, I didn't know much about the movie, to be honest. I mean, you So know, do you remember your reaction to it when that, when um, that happened? I feel like... What the movie does well is it sometimes relies on stuff that's been done before, but then it, they make it unique again. So, like, I believe you've seen, like, an animated version of a character, even if it's consulting itself or himself or herself, you know, in some way and, you know, having this kind of existential crisis or whatever. Uh -huh. You know, I've seen that before. But what I liked is that it was the motivator to get him to go and put lines on paper. You know, and to think about comics, you know. Wait, we don't know that that's going to happen. Oh, we, we, we don't? He just ran out of the store <laughs> really angry. So well, no, I don't know what you're no, talking about. No, we know because are you going to stand there in silence or make a mark? That's what he's saying. And making a mark literally is not only making a mark. You know, we, we know that Harvey is, is going to go home and, and start, you know, drawing lines on paper and, you know, taking those stick figures further and, you know, putting dialogue mean, and... You, as the viewer, would as know. As the viewer, is you would understand that that's just sending that him back to the drawing board. Sending him back to the, literally sending him back to the drawing table. All right. Well, yeah. I'll buy it. I, yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, we'll see what actually happens. But uh, you know, because I've never seen this movie before up until this scene. Ah. So, I mean, it, it's all <laughs> must be exciting for you to. <laughs> yeah. to it's to a watch, great way to watch a movie. To watch his, that's actually, I think, how people watch movies today. It is scene by scene on their phone. <laughs> you know. Um. Well, I, yeah, I personally thought that this mixture of animation and real act, real life action and the way that it, it plays around with the conceits of, of um, comics and cartoons and kind of mixes them together was really clever. I really enjoyed it. I guess I've seen it before in like old Disney movies or something, you mm -hmm, know, like mm -hmm. uh, Mary Poppins or, mm -hmm. something, or Saving Roger Rabbit or something. But this was done in a way that... Who I framed was, Robert, Roger Rabbit? Sorry. Right. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. There you go. Never happened in that one. <laughs> But uh, I just thought it was really clever and just introduced some energy to this movie that otherwise I thought was great and really like, you know, followed closely to the aesthetic of, of mm -hmm. the um, original comics, mm -hmm. but maybe in like almost a slavish kind of way. And this is like, no, we're making, we've got movies here. We have movie technology. We can really bring some, a burst of freshness to this. And I thought it was really clever and made me like sit up in my seat and be like, oh, I want to see more of this, mm -hmm. you know, especially if it's done this way where it's, they never quite stepped over the edge into like cutesiness or something. It, it had still that rough handmade underground quality to it that, that really stayed true to, I think what American Splendor. And it was about. in black and white, the animation, it wasn't right. even, it was they didn't even use white. color. And, you know, they kind of earned that moment to go into animation because they were talking, they were, you know, showing process and creativity 
And they've already showed a version there in the scene before where he's drawing stick figures on, on a piece of paper. Right. You know, that's where it begins. But this is where it's really like they're using special effects, quote unquote, sure. to, to kind of, you know, right. add a whole new element to it. And it was also cool that because like I think as, a, as cartoonists, we always get a little defensive when we see cartoons and animated elements on screen because there's this sort of I think the average person out there is like, well, you know, comics are fine, but cartoons are like where the money is and where the fame is. And I, I don't know if this happens to you, but people are always asking me, so when are they going to make one of your comics into a cartoon or mm-hmm. are you going to mm-hmm. animate it? And I'm mm-hmm. always like, listen, it's hard enough mastering the art of comics, the craft of comics. Animation is a whole other arena. There's all of this stuff that's inherent to making comics, which is very different from the way that uh, cartoons work. So I, I get defensive about that, but right. I thought what they did in this movie was really clever because they show you the word balloons at the same time. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of always reminding you that they come from the comics and the actual word balloons and moments from, you know, the animated moments are almost directly taken exactly from the crumb comic mm-hmm. that, that this scene was based on. So it's, it's sort of like staying true to the comics mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. No, I, that's true, and I do think that one of the reasons why people are it's appealing animated stuff or is because you know moving pictures with sound is because it's a passive yes you know, exactly and exactly you, the the work's being done for you right. a little bit more whereas than, comics require much more from the reader right. that's right and are much better. <laughs> oh, sorry. Did I say that out loud? Oh, my gosh. Um, so one last thing. The animators, Gary Lieb and, and uh, Doug Allen, right. what's kind of cool about them, I don't know if you remember, but back in the day, in the 90s, they did a comic together for Fantagraphics mm-hmm. called Idiot Land. Mm-hmm. And as far as I was concerned, when we started Keyhole, our two-man anthology, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the main influence for us was probably Love and Rockets, the Hernandez brothers. But knowing that there were other two-man anthologies out there like Idiot Land by Doug Allen and Gary right. Lieb was also, you know, very fortifying for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also their work like really epitomized like 90s underground slash mm-hmm. alternative mm-hmm. comics. Mm-hmm. And then weirdly enough, in the early 2000s, I ended up working at Gary Lieb's animation studio, Twinkle, for a, a little a while. What did you do there? I was mostly doing stuff not related to animation, but more like commercial product stuff and right. storyboard kind of things. Did it involve a broom? <laughs> um, just that when I would fly that into work and fly back every day. <laughs> no, I was actually drawing and getting to use my skills. That's nice. That's but um, they were just starting to get into doing animation work, and they ended up later on, obviously, doing this for, for the movie. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think they, they did a really good job. And they did a really good job, you know, aping the style, you know, well enough to to make that kind of transitional leap in your head and to kind of go where Harvey is going next. Exactly. Yeah. So. But it right, like it's it evokes Crumb without being just like a slavish attempt to bring his unique style to a cartoon life. Right. So uh, that about wraps up this episode. Thank you for uh, tuning in. Um, remember, you can visit us at scenebyscenepodcast.com and Scene by Scene on Facebook, where you can subscribe, download past episodes, read up on the show, check out our work, including all things Harvey Picar, and join the discussion. So until next time, when we'll be discussing episode number 12, this is Josh Newfeld And Dean Haspiel. With Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean.